His real name is Walden Robert Cassetto, and his grandfather was a made man in the Genovese crime family. (laughs) Gotta change that name to Bobby Darren. He said he took Darren because of Darren McGavin, who played Mike Hammer, but also Kolchak. I was obsessed with Bobby Darren when I was young. He's so good. I had the box set of, like... You know his career, all his music from the from you know from Splish Splash all the way to If I Had a Hammer, the folk, <laughs> the folk turn he took right before he died. Yeah, and I could never. You know who else was obsessed with him? Kevin Spacey. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier, a gauntlet, if you will. I challenge you to a duel. Tell you the truth, this guy's starting to get on my nerves. It's hot out there. Let's we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Gauntlet. My name is Ryan Saunders, and here today with me are Eric Marsh. And Andrew Stasulis. For those who may be tuning in for the first time, The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of the three of us picks a theme for the week, and then the other two hosts have to program a double feature in reaction to that theme, one that either addresses the topic or perhaps even bucks up against it just a little bit. And you know what? The boys behaved very well this week. I'm very excited. This was... uh, This was an oddball week. You know, part of the reason I had selected this theme, which is alternate histories, was because um, both from a film we just watched, Marsh and I spent, you know, 287 minutes watching a intense Polish historical epic that, albeit featuring a fictional protagonist, pretty much was adhering directly to recorded history. It was a very faithful adaptation of a series of historical events in the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. And I I had recently just finished reading this book by Steve Erickson called Tours of the Black Clock that details the story of a man who ends up becoming a pornographer for Hitler and that pornography distracting Hitler so much that he starts making different decisions in the war and other members of his crew start leading Germany in a different direction and thus winning World War II, right? And, you know, Hitler then sort of retreating to a bunker just to being like a porn obsessive and like living to be a very old man consuming massive amounts of uh, literary porn. And the book itself presents these, you know, converging paths of the 20th century in different directions things might have gone. And it got me thinking about the idea of alternate history in films. And to be perfectly honest, it's a genre I don't normally have that much interest in, but I knew that if I had presented this theme to both of you, you know, all of us are big fans of history, and I knew that you both would find an angle. I had, I had lots of faith, uh, in, in presenting this theme to both of you. This is a theme that I would not have, like, given to me, and I'm, you know what, I'm very pleased. I was expecting us to go in, in uncharted territory, and I believe that we have. So, you know, we've got two films here, that do present alternate histories of sorts, right? Uh, Albeit kind of uh, with radically different approaches, but ultimately comedies, to to put it lightly. So yeah, why don't we just 
dive right into these, you know, alternate views of where we may have ended up <laughs> as people. So, Marsh, you had the earlier of the two film. I'd love to hear uh, how, you, how you tie this one together. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, I was... I, I was struggling, you know, with picking something uh, that wasn't Peter Watkins. You know, I, I didn't think uh, it felt right to to discuss such a, a master uh, on this episode. You know, uh, he deserves his well. own symposium. <laughs> you know, no, not not. Oh, sure. You know, not like that, like that. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so. I was thinking of like, you know, the types of things that are typically featured in, you know, an alternate history story, like some massive world event that is is changed, you know, uh, the Second World War being a, a favorite among, uh, you know, people in the last <laughs> many years. Right. And I was looking for something a little different, you know, and when I was browsing around, I saw what many people saw in video stores in the late 1980s and 1990s. Uh, and that is the the cover slash poster of a movie uh, of a, a very goofy looking man with the title uh, Young Einstein on the cover. Uh, and it's, you know, extremely, uh, you know, we're talking high concept 80s, 90s here, right? It's, a, it's a, an image that you see. Uh, young Einstein, he's just like this this zany Australian guy with crazy lots hair. of crazy hair, and you just a go like fucking weird guitar. You go, what the fuck is this? You know, you just what the fuck? Because at first you think it's carrot top, but then you look a little yeah. closer and realize it's he's not quite buff. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, I'd seen the cover of this for for, for many years, and and I'd never seen it. Uh, and I thought maybe we'll bring a little little comedy to the to the pod. You know, little did I know Andy was also gonna gonna bring some laughs in his own way. But uh, I thought you know this would be a novel approach, just like some zany bullshit alternate history about what happens or what would have happened, I guess, uh, if. Albert Einstein was born as the son of Tasmanian apple farmers. And <laughs> that's what Young Einstein is. It's an Australian movie that was written, produced, directed by, uh, and starring Yahoo Sirius, the quote-unquote auteur of this film. But I actually discovered this film, much like our film, Andy Orders, uh, was a collective effort. It was a film that took uh, four years to make uh, and started as a real family production. There was four people, including Yahoo's wife uh, and two other friends of theirs who started this film. And over the course of four years, they eventually got, you know, in the age of Crocodile Dundee, they got Warner Brothers to go in on this movie and, and to allow them to finish it and do these big set pieces and, and things like that. And so it was this, you know, this independent Australian film that could you know and that's that's what it is and it did it's, yeah and it did and it was uh, it was a huge hit in australia at the time it was the second highest grossing film in australian history behind of course crocodile dundee uh and 
it got international distribution, and I think it was met mostly with befuddlement uh, in in most places, especially the United States. Although it was, of course, because of you know some of the context in the film, it was uh, hotly anticipated in France and well received there, uh, which I think makes a lot of sense for uh, a variety of reasons, but namely because this is a visual comedy, right? One of the reasons that I actually picked this is because when I saw Dave Kerr's uh, Tribune review, he's like, yeah, this is kind of like, you know, this guy's trying to do a silent comic thing or a Tati thing. It's like that kind of thing. It's like visual comedy. And I was like, all right, let's investigate this. You know, is this true? Like, could it actually be true? Um, and so, yeah, that, uh, you know, that's that's Young Einstein. It's uh, a zany Australian movie that probably is more about Australia than it is about history or Albert Einstein. But uh, I think we'll have uh, a good time uh, talking it over. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, yes. Um, I guess, you know, really quickly, just before we jump into your film, Andy, let's, let's clear the air. I got to know, just so, like, as we move forward with this, are we... Are we Pro or con Yahoo serious? Because that was like a discussion that Molly and I had last night post the film. I mean, I, I, it's hard to be one or the other, I think. I mean, <laughs> it's sort of a false binary, Ryan. I, I'll be honest. I'd seen this movie several times already. Oh, you know, oh, when I was okay. young, I, I, I was, I guess then at the time, pro Yahoo very much. Um but now as an older gentleman, I don't know if I can think of it in those simplistic terms, <laughs> Ryan. It's far more complicated and complex than, than that. Okay. Okay. Yeah, what he said. Molly wasn't convinced by Yahoo. This was my first exposure to the man, and I, I think I was able to ride the waves of Yahoo's presence. I, I came out pro Yahoo, but we'll, 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 we'll dive yeah, in. It seems like more of a conclusion, you know, it's, let's see how, let's see how this conversation sure, goes. Sure, sure, uh, sure. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. Um, certainly, uh, an absolutely alternate history there. Andy, your film focuses less on an individual and more on a, you know, major global event. So tell us a little bit about the film that, that you selected. Sure. I am a big, big uh, history buff. I think as I've gotten older, I I have um, increasingly read more nonfiction than than fiction in in my life, and I've always been a, a history kid. And uh, I've also been fascinated by alternate history. But I think you know, for me as well, you don't have to just like read alternate history or engage with alternate history to to like a, an alternate history text to to think about that kind of stuff. I think when I read history, I'm often actively also thinking, well, what if it didn't go that way? You know, so I'm often, you know, creating alternate histories in my mm -hmm. own imagination. Now that being said, like I am a person who 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 finds those what if scenarios very, very intriguing. Um I, of course, was initially a little um, taken aback when there was a no Hitler edict placed on it. And <laughs> and then I was sort of like, does that mean no World War II? Because, you know, I think when you do look into alternate history, fiction and films, you immediately notice that World War II is 
number one on that list of of subject matter. So so I really was like, okay, I'm I'm not gonna um, I'm not gonna go with with World War II. Um, and I remembered that there was a film uh, that I had come across and and had long meant to see. But I, for one reason or another, you know, it just like falls down your list and, and you're kind of always like, oh, I'll, I'll get back to this. I'll get back to this. So uh, this was the perfect opportunity to grab it, to put it at the top of the list and to bring it to the podcast. Uh, the film I chose is from 2004, directed by Kevin Wilmot, who some might know as a, a uh, sort of frequent collaborator with Spike Lee. Oscar uh, winner. Oscar winner as well. He, he co-wrote screenplays for Black Klansmen and The Five Bloods most recently. He's also a professor, I believe, at the University of Kansas. Uh, and I think he teaches film history there. Um, he's a very cool dude. And the movie he made is a mock documentary called CSA, The Confederate States of America. This is a, a sort of interesting construction. Um, it's a mock documentary that presents itself as a BBC or BBS in this film uh, television program that's exploring the history of the Confederate States of America, an America in which, during our Civil War, the Confederates win. So what would happen if, 140 years later, we are finding ourselves in this place, the CSA? So it has this, you know, uh, really good kind of, you know, no pun intended, I guess, mock-up of what, you know, one of these kind of like history channel programs would look like, but it's also interspersed as it's sort of presented uh, like a, a television broadcast with commercials, uh, satirical commercials for what Americans living in the CSA would, would be uh, sold, I guess, products services and that sort of thing. Um, it is certainly a very dark satire. Um, and I think like a lot of great satires, it, it also is encouraging us not to just sort of like, um, like revel in the humor, but also, you know, think about the, the, the truth and the, the frightening drama that could surround this, this, uh, this subject matter. Um, and as much as this is about the past, it's also encouraging us to look at the present, the, the world that we live in, uh, and, and perhaps wonder if the South really did actually lose the Civil War in America. Uh, so, yeah, it's, uh, I think, a really fun film for um, people who are interested in, in kind of exploring these sorts of things. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm very eager to, to sort of play with um, a lot of what the film suggests might have happened. Aside from, of course, the biggest issue, which would be that slavery never ends. Uh, if anything, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger in this in this version of America. But there's a lot of other really interesting kind of 
um, historical moments that, that play out a little bit differently because of this. So there's a lot in there. There's a lot packed in there. Uh, I don't know if all of it lands perfectly for me, but, but that's, that's quite all right. Yeah. Uh, I, I certainly had a lot of fun with it. So that is CSA, the Confederate States of America. Thank you. You know, one thing I was thinking about while watching both of these films and about alternate histories more broadly is how the histories themselves sometimes struggle, these alternate histories themselves sometimes struggle to truly create like a brand new path. There are still like these assumptions that certain things would ultimately come about. I think young Einstein uses those things to its benefit because it's just playing with that familiarity for the development of gags. But I also found that with the CSA at times, especially once it gets to the 60s, that it uses actual history, maybe occasionally as a crutch, you know, like where certain political events still keep happening. Things that, you know, maybe like down the line, you'd have to think butterfly effect wise, like these people just wouldn't exist. These things wouldn't be coming about. And I feel like in so many alternate histories I've encountered, that's often a strategy is even still, oh, a hundred years later, this political event still happens. You know, the United States still invades Vietnam or James Baldwin still exists, but he's just in Canada because that's where all the culture ended up going up into. You know, like the fact that these figures still exist in a lot of these key moments in history. I mean, even just the fact that Kennedy is still assassinated in the CSA, right? Well, you know, <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's, a, it's not get too ahead of ourselves. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack. The, well, yeah, that, but there's, there's so many that it's almost like impossible to spoil. But I was thinking just generally about that with alternate histories, how oftentimes it feels as though in order to really develop an alternate history that you still can't help but, you know, dabble in the real history that we ended up in, in order to, you know, fill out your narrative. Yeah, I think that's a really, um, that's a good point. That's a really good point. Um, I know that I have told you both this, but but it was also interesting for me to watch this because only a, f a few months ago, really kind of, I think over the summer, I finally wrapped it up. I had just uh, dived back into who in in like, you know, popular paperback fiction is often considered the master of alternate history, uh, a guy by the name of Harry Turtledove. And he has mm -hmm. written, I mean, countless, countless books on alternate history and and obscure history as well. I mean, this guy just, he's, I mean, if you see a picture of him, you know, he looks like the kind of guy who would spend his life writing hundreds of books on alternate history. <laughs> um, but he is, I think his most popular series was one called Southern Victory. And it's one that begins with the South winning the Civil War. Mm -hmm. And then goes on through, you know, like the period of Western expansion in the late 1800s, World War One and, and World War Two, the entire sort of like, you know, global history, as much as it is rooted in America, like how would these events play out? And in that, he does a really good job of avoiding what you just mentioned, Ryan, because, you know, for him, uh, you know, in his strange thing, in his, in his version, uh, when World War I happens, the United States of America allies with Imperial Germany. And in his version of World War I, the United States and Imperial Germany win the First World War. So as a result of that, 
there is no Hitler in Germany because the conditions that created a guy like Hitler were very specific to Germany losing World War I the way that they did. So there's not even a mention of Hitler in his world. And mm -hmm. in fact, in his world, because the South loses the First World War and gets the reparations and the punishments and the, you know, all that happened to Imperial Germany is now basically happening in the Confederate States, a Hitler-like figure emerges from those conditions you know and so it's like on the one hand he's avoiding it but on the other hand he's also kind of like saying well look guys like hitler get created in these kinds of scenarios it isn't just the the peculiarity of a man named adolf hitler it's a much bigger sort of complex series of events that creates the conditions for extremism and an individual to suddenly stand up and say, hey, you know, this fucking sucks and you know whose fault it is, right? Like, right. so he does a really good job of, of completely sort of like not trying to like, you know, ham-fistedly like still shove these guys in. Because I, I would say that is one of my criticisms of it. I share that criticism with you that, you know, when it gets to that point in history, and I would say basically after the the Great Depression, this film, it starts to kind of lose its 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 luster for me because I do feel that they're kind of like forcing in things and making great leaps and then sort of, you know, kind of like washing over certain things in a really kind of like, you know, in a way that wasn't as rich and detailed as I think the first half of the film. Yeah, I, I wrote down that both films, in, in my opinion, are, are really not serious considerations of alternate timelines, but a, an excuse or a formal device to uh, get at, obviously, you know, very different concerns. In the case of Young Einstein, it's like you said, Ryan, it's the development of the gag. It's the, the satire of Australia as this backwater and putting, you know, the world's smartest guy mm -hmm. uh, from there and the, and the humor that ensues. And also, uh, like, a, a platform for... Yahoo serious, yes. right? To to be this like yeah. comedic star, this comedic personality. Exactly. And in the case of Wilmot, it's, you know, his perspective, the black perspective, and and not just in, in the satire, but like what you were getting at, Andy, it's like but what about now, right? So like, you know, lurking underneath CSA is a much more serious and provocative kind of film too. I mean, especially thinking about, hey, this did come out in 2004. Like that's dark Bush times, you mm -hmm. know? And mm -hmm. like think about a much different world uh, than our world today, you know? Uh, and there's a there's a palpable anger, you know, that that pervades the film. And I really like that, of course. But yeah, like the, the logical timeline stuff just, yeah, eventually just got on my nerves because he's just re purposing classic events or reinterpreting them and twisting them inside out. But like, it just doesn't, I like, I just don't think history works that way. It's, you yeah, know, like, right. <laughs> yeah, right. so like I have a fundamental like disagreement with its construction. However, Again, I think that's not the point of the fucking film is right. to like lay out this complex timeline as opposed to Wilmot being able to like interrogate like white images of black people, the history, you know, all that stuff, mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. so on and so forth. I think he uses traditional history in a way that works both 
obviously to the detriment of the film, as we've talked about, especially in the latter half, where it just turns, it relies on the narrative of the 20th century for the beats that people are familiar with in order to keep the film moving. But I do think it uses real history to its advantage as providing spots for the timeline to land on only because there's this underlying argument that some of these things probably were inevitable because they're all a part of the same design and project. Like we're still having the Spanish American war because this is in line with the philosophies that were being developed even here with the Confederate States. Like this isn't something that would naturally go away. There are still, you know, Indian boarding schools, right? Like, and that's like, it's treated through a similar lens as everything else in the film, but those real historical events are still in line with even if the South had won the the Civil War. Sure. I mean, and that's, again, like what I think the film is getting at. It's like, yeah, the, the you know, genocide against the indigenous people of America was bipartisan. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, mm-hmm. that that's that's it, you know? Like, and this film, like, nails those moments, like you said, Ryan. And, like, yeah, I mean, I think they do, like, some clever stuff, too, with the, the doctoring of photos. Like, old Lincoln was fucking killing me, dude. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, so that's, I mean, that's like a big elephant in the room, I guess, like I wanted to talk about, like with the beginning of this movie is I got really nervous in the first like 20 minutes of this thing because because of two things in particular. I thought a lot of the fake media looked really, really bad. I think some of it looked good, but I think whenever they were emulating like older movies, like silent films, like when Griffith had a new movie or they tried to make a 40s film and it was in like trying to do weird washed out Technicolor, to me it just felt so cheap and wasn't achieving anywhere close to what they were looking for. What really, the toughest sits of the movie were definitely when it was older historical figures like in the late 1800s that we were given sound bites for and it sounded like i mean a college student production of someone doing an old timey voice this Mm -hmm. is what was going on you know and i was like oh my god is this what the whole movie's gonna be like i think overall i did like this movie but i think my biggest criticism is its main failures come from terrible performances all across the board Look, it's, it's a cheap tough. movie. It is, yeah. I mean, first of all, yes. I mean, this is basically like a, a, a college film. I mean, you know, this was made by basically a, a college professor, and you can clearly see that he okay. has enlisted other, you know, academics to take part in it as well, you know, mm-hmm. especially like the talking heads of, of other, you know, academics and that sort of thing. But like, yeah, I mean, this movie was made on the cheap. It was made on the cheap in a, in a very big way. And yeah, I think that that really shows when they do try to go for some of the more like big kind of like spectacular recreations that, that you're talking about. And what's funny is actually like, because yeah, you know, you've mentioned it, but there are, we see in their description of history sometimes that they're, you know, like telling us, oh, and you know, this historical event was, was recreated in the very popular, you know, American film from 1940, Dark Victory or something like that, you know? And it's like, they're, they're doing Guadalcanal Diary, but it's, it's a movie about about, you know, the CSA's uh, 
imperial conquest of South America or something like mm-hmm. that, you know? But but there there are some of those, I think, that do land because they're they're sort of like cheaper and like lower budget. So, you know, in, in the time period in this when they're in like, you know, the 1950s and instead of the Red Scare, there's the Abbey Scare, the Abolitionist Scare, and they, they show scenes from a recreated like you know, Hollywood schlock B-movie, you know, I married an abolitionist. You're not the same anymore. I don't know you, honey. You're so cold and distant. Do you still love me? That's not it. Then are you sick, dear? Do we need to see a doctor? do talk to me what is there to say i found these in your room the confessions of nat turner the life and times of Frederick Douglass. Uncle Tom's cabin! What are you doing with these? If you must know, I read them. I'm an abolitionist. And like that one was really good because it was black and white and it was low budget, which is what I married a communist would have looked like. I mean, like mm-hmm. that one lands, but yeah, yeah when it's just as cheap as woman on pier 13. Yeah. Yeah, totally. yeah. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. That shit lands. But, but yeah, when they, when they try to recreate like gone with the wind, but, but from a Southern victory perspective, yeah, it's gonna, it's definitely gonna show it's, 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 you know, rented costume a lot more in Mm -hmm. that regard there is like this meta quality of course too where obviously cheap early 2000s documentaries that i would have watched in school when the teacher like rolled in the big tube tv on the cart you know and popped in the vhs tape those interviews are performed you know they're scripted they're these academics that speak perfectly and they don't have any with yeah three-point creamy lighting you know right and like that element works and so there is almost like this built-in you can't criticize some of these performances because like this stuff all is performed you know yeah but even Mm -hmm. even still like I struggled with much of the that part of the viewing experience. I mean, yeah, the film is a direct assault on the Ken Burns style, you mm-hmm. know, which is cool. We love to see that, you know. Um, but I do think, like, like some people have suggested, and I and I know Spike, you know, uh, helped get this film distributed. Yeah, this it's, is it's a like, Spike Lee presentation, right? So, like, this film is in a in a way, as people have suggested, a companion film to bamboozled you know in that sort of like early 2000s dv era but also obviously uh exploring the same things and at at certain times like really really you know really pushing it into uh wild territory because you know as you were alluding to andy like 
uh, there's all these films, you know, that are referenced in this history. And, and again, it's sort of like, yeah, it's like classic Hollywood obviously uh, still existed, no problem, you know. Uh, and so we get all this stuff. But the first film we see is the, the D.W. Griffith film mm-hmm. about Abraham Lincoln's escape. And this is like one of those moments that, yeah, was, like, pushing it into bamboozled territory for me, where, like, the joke, you know, Wilmot's joke is that Abe Lincoln had to put on blackface to escape with Harriet Tubman, and then it, like, becomes this whole, like, ridiculous, you know, film directed by Griffith, and it's, like, it was... The hunt for dishonest Abe. The hunt for dishonest Abe. (laughs) I mean, like, it's just so, yeah, I mean, and it really is, like, there's some horrifying stuff in this movie, and, and... that was one of those moments where I was like, holy fuck, this is like, this is really going there. But, you know, it's not always doing that, obviously. Mm-hmm. But then, yeah, the so on the other end of the spectrum with with Yahoo Sirius and, and Young Einstein, I did think it was very funny how all of these established theories and all of this real history from the real Albert Einstein were things that just struck young Einstein in these moments of epiphany as a source of like humor. Like we're never actually forced to think about Einstein himself spending all of this time putting together these theories, coming up with the calculations, all the research. They're just something that's inherent in him. And even in this alternate timeline, it was all inside Albert all along, I guess, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is like a funny way of of presenting it. But so I was I was pretty quickly in this movie's favor. So I had never seen it. I had never seen Young Einstein, and I also like looked at that Kerr thing after you had mentioned it, Marsh, and with the note that he was doing something Jerry Lewis esque. That's what I was looking for the whole time. So whenever the film was scratching a Jerry Lewis itch for me, I was just happy. You know, I was like happy as a little clam just watching this thing. But I think the comparison is is fair. I mean, as I've done some reading on Yahoo Serious, and I, I mean, maybe this is something that everybody knows because I'm just out of the loop, but like that is his name. Like he legally changed his name to Yahoo Serious. It's not just yeah. a stage name. I mean, his name is Greg, but yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but the... He did, you know, he is the total filmmaker in this instance, right? Yes. You know, writing, directing, everything, starring, all the design. And it does have that gonzo quality of something that seems like it was, you know, directly projected out of one wild man's brain. Yeah, and the, you know, as the film opens with young-ish Albert, uh, you know, living out on the apple farm, that's... Uh, Yahoo Sirius's grandfather's little cabin and that was like an Australian settler's cabin that like belonged to his family and uh, I learned that yeah he's like a you know again going back to Rosenbaum and Hick auteurs uh, here's another one he's like from the country like he's not even from this you know I mean this is like a Sydney kind of production but that was out of necessity he's he's a country boy at heart and I was like you know, I guess based on the poster, I figured it would be kind of like a PG thing. And it really is like it's like a clean film. Oh, you yeah. know, yeah, uh, which is which is really weird, you know. But again, there is this like attempt to be this pop popular populist Keaton Chaplin type uh, figure in this film, you know, as he just like cavorts around Australia doing no work uh, (laughs) as a scientist, just being like, oh yeah, how about that? Um, But I was really like sold to when it gets to a surfing scene 
And I was like, is that him? You know, because I recently cut a surfing movie, you know, and I was like checking out the footage. Uh, and I'm like, yeah, that's he's shredding. Like, so this guy's like a real Australian surfer, too, you know? Like, I mean, we should point out that, you know, um, this isn't just like a straight like attempt at a, a Tasmanian biopic of Albert Einstein, because like <laughs> through the course of his journey, there are many, many things he discovers slash invents slash yeah, introduces more. to the world. I mean, there's a lot. I mean, at first we open even with him basically like discovering like the, you know, like principles of gravity. It's, it's more young Newton than it is young Einstein, but he's even alluding to something else that he's really interested in cooking up, which is a new type of music that he's got in his mind. So we're going to be treated to a lot of different kinds of sort of, um, stolen valor. Yeah. Stolen valor. <laughs> that's a really good way of putting it. And I, I guess, you know, for me, like that's, that's also the kind of mixed bag I have with, with this movie in the way that not everything kind of lands, that it is very scattershot because it is this, this one sort of deranged man's kind of like, and then this could happen and then this could happen and then this could happen. And as you said, it's all just, just kind of like one set piece after another mm -hmm. for him to kind of, you know, play in these, in these, uh, you know, various scenarios, these various, these these kind of moments that he wants to introduce, as well as a a whirlwind romance with Marie Curie. <laughs> so it's sort of it's it, there's a lot going on. There's actually a lot packed into this movie in what like ninety some minutes. I mean, yeah. it's it's it is all over the map, like literally and figuratively. Even thinking about that stolen valor and then even the surfing scene, that kind of ties back into this other idea I had with this film being very Jerry Lewis-esque because it's also just like a vanity piece yeah. for this guy. You know, he's, yeah. Yahoo Sirius is trying to convince us the whole time, I can be goofy and very funny, but I can also shred on a surfboard. I can play the guitar. All the girls love me. Mary Curie, like beautiful, gorgeous Mary Curie. You know, she she's obsessed with my brain. And I get that it's, you know, the Albert Einstein character, but this is a man that is pretty desperate to come across as super cool and funny throughout. Yeah, there's only like one character in the film who seemingly doesn't like him and is antagonistic to him in some <laughs> right. way but everyone else is kind of taken by him impressed by him charmed by him uh you know and and his many quirks mm -hmm. yeah i i wrote i might as well just bring it out now i wrote down a list of stolen valor uh, in this film because I think too again like you know to me this film is also like yeah Australia wanting desperately to be liked as well or in a, in a funny way like elevating themselves you know by going like hey like what if you know mm -hmm. we could have invented all this shit but then I'm thinking like man I'm thinking about all the people that this film just completely you know steals and, and, and offends from. And I got my list, right? Lee DeForest, the inventor of the audio amplifier, mm -hmm. slap in the face, you know? The people that split the atom at University of Chicago and Fermilab in Batavia, 
fuck you, you yeah. know? Uh, <laughs> black people in general, because, of course, young Einstein invents rock and roll and therefore blues and invents Chuck Berry, and he also break dances at a certain point oh, after yeah, kind of, like, dancing around with, like, drummers in a very awkward scene. Yeah. Um, like something out of CSA, to be honest with you. Yeah, or, <laughs> yeah. or Durkee, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Beethoven rolling in his grave, the Rolling Stones rolling in their grave, uh, the creators of the atom bomb rolling in their graves, mm -hmm. you know? And that's just the beginning of the list, yeah. you know? Germans and their beer. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Yeah. Um, he, like, kind of invents beer. Yes. Like, <laughs> it's like beer's existed for so fucking long, you know? And that's, yeah, that's really his his first foray into, you know, the world of sciences is when he splits a beer atom and blows himself up. Uh, and <laughs> It splits a beer atom. And, and that, you know, again, it's, it's like Australian humor, you know? Uh, and, and I like, you know, I kind of like all that stuff, especially that it sort of, like, comes back around with, like, the beer nuclear bomb or whatever. But, yeah, I mean, this thing... <laughs> Uh, this thing has nothing to do with history. This thing has nothing to do with anything. You no, know? it doesn't. <laughs> Other than Yahoo Sirius, who, by the way, I don't know if you guys discovered in your Yahoo studies, yeah, who at a certain point in the, the downturns of his career uh, attempted to sue Yahoo for uh, uh, you know a claim of copyright infringement onto his name. And, yeah. and it was summarily tossed out, so... Which is very ironic because so much of this movie is about young Einstein trying to patent his ideas and making <laughs> sure that he could constantly get credit for them. It's probably where he got the idea from it. He's like, man, remember in young Einstein? Like, maybe I could do that, you know? I do think that the front chunk of the film has some of all of my favorite gags and lines. Lots of things that get tossed off, but just things specifically for... You know, this funny idea of the Hicks in in general Tasmania that I, I found very appealing. I love when he's talking to his father about wanting to become a physicist and his father's reaction is like, So you see, Dad, I want to be a physicist. What do they grow, son? Physicists don't grow anything. What's the use of them, then? They study the basic laws and the principles of the universe. You can study the basic laws and the principles of the universe in the evening after you've done the washing up. Stupid, stupid shit like that. I mean, I think ultimately, like, my takeaway was, like, based on, the, you know, the poster, I would have expected some mugging. He doesn't mug at all. No, he doesn't. He actually, like, plays it straight, you know, which he understands about comedy. Um, but I do think, like, ultimately, uh, it's just not that funny um, in, in general. Like, I think the movie is very pleasant. And I think... Kerr hit the nail on, on the head. You know, he said, like, it's pleasant, it's engaging, but it's not, like, hilarious, you know? Like... I wasn't... <laughs> I wasn't ever... <clears throat> I wasn't ever, like, laughing, you know? Like, I was never, like, ha, 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 at it, you know? I'd smirk sometimes, but, like, again, I, I watched this when I was, like, you know, 11 years old, and I... Uh, my 11-year-old brain was was like you know it was a sumptuous feast for oh, yeah. an 11 year old brain and i i think maybe that's 
that's one of the issues that it's like uh, if you're if if you were young when this came out this was probably really, really amusing um, because it is visual and there's a lot of like cartoonish kind of like sight gags and, and it's, it's, it's colorful and it's, it's noisy mm-hmm. and there's rock and roll and there's music and there's surfing. There's all these things, but they, they don't assemble into like, a, an, a, like anything that you can really kind of connect with you 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 can't like even in jerry lewis right like he'll at least like start by trying to establish like some some deep connection you know or like you know the movie that we watched on the pod like this 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 you know this deep relationship he has with with this young girl you know or whatever that sounded weird you know but like you know what i mean like (laughs) it was yeah you know it's like there's a guy here for us there's no like what is he what is his end game like there isn't (laughs) really an end game or finally when the end game yeah yeah i mean i I guess either in that regard but you know when his end game does finally arrive it, it again kind of comes in this like almost like second or third climax of being like, so it was really all about the rock and roll show that he was trying to put on, you know, and all this stuff kind of happened along the way and was sort of amusing. And, And as a result, like CSA, you kind of have just like a series of vignettes and, 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 and there, there's sometimes even like very mixed in their tone. Like there's times where it is going for this kind of, like the whole opening is almost this weird, like pastoral. Yeah. Like hick o tourist thing of being like, look at the beauty of Tasmania. And we have a lot of these just like really wide frames of, of just him looking over the, the, the nature. And, and he talks about that, about how, you know, he has this almost like touching moment where he says to his dad, like, I'm a pastor. Pacifist. I I believe that all nature is connected and it's all beautiful and and you know you're kind of pondering this and like man this is lovely and and he's farming apples and that sort of thing and then next thing you know he's he's living in a brothel in Sydney and he's uh, he's he's uh, trying to not even really trying to woo Marie Curie she's more trying to woo him you know and, and yeah I mean this movie doesn't really have heart. You know, and that's what separates it from something like Jerry. If you want even as crazy and cold and scary as Jerry is like black heart. Yeah, there's at least a black heart there, you know. Yeah. Um, I will say in terms of, you know, you weren't like, you know, guffawing with laughter throughout this movie. There was one moment that I laughed so hard and teared up that I had to pause the movie. And uh, this just kind of shows like my like dumb guy energy of like what I think is very funny. But there's a moment of pastoral beauty in this like Tasmanian countryside home where the camera, I can't remember where it starts, but it's this like long tracking shot of just like, ah, a day at the farm. And the door opens and the mother like walks out with a wash basin and she like goes to dump out all the dirty water but because of her momentum and her size she ends up pouring all of the water over her body and then like nearly collapses and then just like walks back in really frustrated that moment individually brought me to tears i laughed so hard let me give you an example of of kind of like how this movie unfolds you know in and i in like a scene if i had to 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 give you a a good example of of just 
basically what's going to replicate for like 90 minutes. Uh, <laughs> we're at a, a an old-timey swimming pool, like an old-timey like swimming area, and young Einstein is strolling along with Marie Curie, and he looks at a clock, and just by looking at the clock at the old swimming hole, he suddenly comes up with the theory of relativity, and he, he, he spits it out. Just from looking at this clock at the swimming, you know, the, the swimming pool to Marie Curie. And she says, that's brilliant. Cut to Marie Curie undressing erotically in her bedroom. And we linger on the, the, the pieces of her body like it's, uh, you know, yeah. Godard and, and Anna Karina. Cut to Yahoo Sirius struggling to get his pants off and falling out of a brothel window end scene you know that's yes. this movie <laughs> like that's basically it you know yeah. yeah i mean i guess that's probably the big failure of both of these movies is that ultimately they're one note and maybe like they just kind of repeat a note over and over again and maybe that's something that's kind of baked into an alternate history in certain respects because you know how far can you stray from the path and really develop something that is new and fresh and outside of our timeline and outside of things we are used to of course you know i don't think yahoo wasn't approaching the project of young einstein as like this is an alternate history this is just like a goof he's thinking what if i put albert einstein in this area you know he's not trying to create like a branching timeline of sorts regardless he is still you know focusing on discoveries and condensing them. And there is a what if to it. Well, yeah, but at a certain point, you know, we we found out what it's like, of course, when you alienate your audience by creating a new world in On the Silver Globe, you know, and like we all we all love that. But like, look at look at that, you know, like your average person is not not going to watch that movie or enjoy it. Uh, I mean, I would I would say alien. I, I would know? say again, though, going back to CSA that. While while I think some of the humor might be one note, I think again the the sort of underlying anger that that Marsh um, highlighted for me does give you more like food for thought, certainly than the apples of, of young Einstein. That there are you know a, a lot of things in its presentation of the alternate history that for me. I do find myself still kind of thinking about and I find very interesting in, in how they present it. Like the stuff in the 1960s is, is, is one thing, but I think the most interesting aspects of its presentation of an alternate timeline for me came in sort of like the reconstruction era and the like the 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 turn of the century the turn of the 19th into the into the 20th century and i found that part of the timeline mm -hmm. like most interesting obviously um you know the the stuff with like lincoln and his really kind of sad demise does have some some really like intriguing points that i think they're making about abraham lincoln more broadly and his actual concern for the slaves and again like those kind of angry moments almost like uh sort of like take you off guard because you're you're sort of watching these more like 
you know, broadly almost, you know, these, these kinds of like sketches about, you know, the, the, the commercials for the, the shackle, you know, protect your, Mm -hmm. your property with the new like computer chip that can help you track your runaway slaves and stuff like that. But then when we do get these moments of, of like historical, um, pain and immediacy like you sometimes like don't really know what to do with it or while you're still trying to grapple with it we've then moved on to just kind of like rush through the timeline that they're trying to carry out you know because there's just a lot stuffed in here uh you know i think the 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 most like powerful point that he makes is again in this kind of um idea of the reconstruction and how you know, the North, like they go into this whole thing then about like movies and plays and gone with the wind. And then how the North is remembered by the South as this sort of, well, they were valiant. They were a little misguided, but, but we then embraced them as brothers. And, and then, you know, how the South in classic Hollywood was always depicted as this kind of like, well, yes, slavery was a bad thing, but they weren't still noble people. And, and maybe this was a, was a bad institution, but, but we still love them and we can idolize them and we can present them. I mean, like there's a long trope in Hollywood of the, the, the gallant, cavalry officer of the confederacy and and the point there is to again remind you of that of being like yeah you know how many times in hollywood have we presented these 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 rakish these rakish confederates these johnny rebs who were charming and and yeah who have no ideology (laughs) (laughs) right yeah you know it's like and he, he brings that up because the whole point in the way the south wins the civil war is that and this is like true. This came from actual history that, that, you know, they were trying to present it not as a moral issue, but as an issue of, of, of property and states' rights. And in his version, Great Britain and France buy into that. And they, they, they do join the South then in saying, yes, this is about, you know, freedom and states' rights and not having a tyrannical government. But then again, this whole thing of, okay, uh, you know, did we as a nation really reject slavery outright as this morally reprehensible crime against humanity? Or was it just a moment of of inconvenient economic truths or something? Yeah, well, because I think that that ended up being, to me, one of the most provocative and interesting ideas that he's playing with in the film about how, you know, one of the constant things that gets brought up, Confederate excuses and apologies, is the idea that it would have destroyed their economy, of course, right? And even just this idea that the American economy, like from, you know, everything we have today is because of slavery. Our entire economy was based and built because of that, because of what was set in place. And that's how we advanced to where we are now. I think one of the most provocative ideas in the film is that he keeps repeatedly bringing up that the economic benefits have totally dwindled into the 20th century, that there is no economic benefit. They're only receiving sanctions. And yet the Confederate States of America hold on to slavery so desperately because it is just so ingrained in their philosophy and it's what they actually believe in. It's like their ultimate principle. And it almost sounds like, you know, it's like, oh, no, it's a state's rights thing. It's, it's you know, he's saying like, no, like they they were dead set on this. And this is something mm-hmm. that would have survived even when the economy was still collapsing, you know, in this alternate timeline. Yeah. And that's what leads to then that like that that 
that southern expansion, the conquering mm-hmm. of the southern hemisphere of saying, okay, well, maybe if if Europe isn't going to trade with us, we will just take over Latin America. We'll take over South America. We'll we will we will create our entire sort of economy around this this trade. And and again, that's for me what was like most interesting and compelling, which is that we didn't get involved in World War One. Our encounter into that kind of like, you know, modern warfare happened in our brutal and bloody conquering of of Mexico, of of Brazil, of Argentina. And again, even in that kind of like, hey, like, isn't this still basically what we ended up doing regardless? You know, we get this whole discussion of us, you know, toppling governments and pitting South American countries against one another and and causing coups and destabilization. And it's like, wait, yes, this is, quote, alternate history, but it's also not that alternate if you think about it, right? I mean, like, that's where I find the movie does, uh, again, like really succeed in its goal and its mission. Yeah, I love when those moments like slip in because it it, it shows the cracks of the construction in, in a good way. And it's like as designed by Wilmot, which is to at a certain point go like, and then this fake thing happened, but like it actually happened. And just like the way they echo and rhyme, like in, in reality, really works in those moments. Yeah. What should be like really alienating and unsettling, like the idea of seeing a 75 year old Hitler in an alternate World War II movie, is like ultimately troubling to us in this because it isn't that different from what we see every day sure in America. dude even the fake mobutu too had me like going insane right because there's even that like dark turn where it's like and then africans were selling you know more africans to the confederates and it's like you know obviously riffing on like you know the the certain like right-wing African dictator of the the middle 20th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's this whole Congress, like, where he's, like, talking to all these white guys. The world must understand that captivity is good for the African. He's better off with you than with us. We only secure and trade the inferior tribes, only those with whom we have long-standing conflicts. Of course, we have conflicts with most tribes. <laughs> Uh, and it's like so fucked up. I mean, yeah, even in like small things, like in those little like commercials, like we see a commercial for in, you know, contemporary Confederate States of America, whatever, uh, uh, a, a promo for their version now of cops called Runaways. Uh, and, and we're seeing like, you know, bits and pieces of what you'd see in Cops, the TV show, Cops, the reality show. And there's this really like hokey, you know, Confederate Southern version of, of the TV show's iconic anthem. We all know bad boys, bad boys from Cops. But it's now got like a, a mouth harp and it's these like Southern guys, you know, going like, run away, run away, what you gonna do? What you gonna do? Run away, run away. And it's like this crazy fucking thing, you know? And it's like, yes, this should be like so like, wow, God, can you imagine that? But that's just basically what fucking Cops is, right? And he's showing us. Like, y'all already watched this fucking show. This is like one of the longest running fucking shows on TV of watching, you know, white authority figures of the state crashing down on black men and beating them up and throwing them in handcuffs and having a a catchy pop song anthem to to play over it 
you know? It's like, as much as it is a window into another world, like he is holding up a mirror for us to, to, to gaze into of our own. Yeah, I mean, I even thought that he was treading in some wild territory too when he was presenting the alternate history of the suffragette movement where women decide to finally take up arms with the logic of like, well, we're white too. You know, like we deserve <laughs> to have equal rights. We are white people. And yeah. it made me think about how, you know, it's been like a common criticism in certain circles, like over the years about this idea of like white women trying to make it all about them. This More like, stolen valor. More stolen valor, you know? <laughs> and I think like, wow, 2004, he's got like that moment in the movie. I was like, this is pretty provocative. On the other hand, the most 2004 aspect about it uh, in a bad way is Canada as a bastion of uh, freedom cool, and democracy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> as if they are, don't have their own uh, horrific legacy uh, mm-hmm. to you know yeah. reconcile themselves and you're right you it know? is like so 2004 <laughs> because like the most 2000 fucking four bush era shit was just i'm gonna I'm, move to canada yeah. with james baldwin <laughs> i'm moving to canada yeah i'm moving to canada with with james baldwin and richard wright and elvis presley i mean like yeah that is like major lol and i think that is like the the sort of like weakest point but he is in that again if you if you look at what he's ultimately trying to say is like hey america black people made all the fucking cool shit that you're into and again stolen valor elvis presley like they even sneak that in there being like yeah. elvis didn't invent any of that shit yeah. nor did yahoo serious right? right it's like it ain't these these white guys who got all the credit for it you know, it was it was this culture which was born out of suffering and pain and people having their valor, their sweat, their blood, their suffering, their anguish completely marginalized by by American culture. And I love that, like when he was talking about that, then he's just cutting to like just obvious like American television from like the 60s and 70s, yeah. which is the yeah. whitest fucking shit you've ever goddamn yeah. seen. The ban on race, music, literature, and art stifled American creativity. Prohibition of certain abolitionist and Negro-inspired art left Confederate culture void and without conscience. American art never evolved beyond government-inspired propaganda. The corniest, like, hopping around uh, white guy shit. Yeah, marching bands and all that kind of crap. Yeah, like John John Philip Sousa or whatever. (laughs) It's like, I know we've been kind of labeling that second half of the film relying on traditional history as being something it uses as a crutch to its detriment but there is also something inherently provocative then about using real footage and saying well like how different would this all really look you know think about the 20th century and the way it went all this media is all just these white people you know like this stuff just already existed and it fits this alternate timeline too well yeah and in a very like spike moment you know spike has kind of done this sort of thing uh you know that that gets like basically like turned around on us because um you know well maybe it's not a spike thing maybe it's a kevin wilmot thing that he introduced spike to ultimately right but like you know, throughout the film, we get those commercial breaks where there are these like really like hilariously offensive products that are being advertised on TV, like Sambo X-15 motor oil with like a really offensive caricature of like a black man on the bottle. And, and again, we are meant to be like, wow, lol, 
how horrible would that be if the South had won the Civil War and darky toothpaste was being advertised on television? But then at the very end, all those things, which seemed like total fabrications, he shows us these were real products. I'm showing, I made a fake commercial for a real product that had a real horrible caricature of a black person on the bottle. And it didn't die when the South lost the Civil War. This product existed into the 1980s in some cases that people were still selling this shit. And in some places, he points out in the world, this stuff is still sold and marketed. Now, one thing that I, you know, not to you know put all my cards on the table here, but I had an issue, uh, which is not only uh, the sort of like underbaked uh, World War II and after sort of like European aspect to it, but uh, there's also no uh, communists anywhere yeah yeah in the entire there's no ussr that's involved in anything that happens yeah, you know right. there's no there's no south american resistance like i don't know not to nitpick but like there's like a huge again and in, in maybe it's just like so 2004 you know where it's like yeah the, the cold war is a distant memory you know or whatever but like i don't know there's a there's a very bizarre absence where like at a certain point it's like and then the allies like won the war and i'm like Without the U.S., okay, yeah, you, the USSR, sure, you know. But then I'm like, well, then isn't isn't Europe communist? <laughs> you know, but it's like yeah. not even, you know, it, it, none of that happens. Because that know? that in again, like, uh, and and I hate to just like compare it to uh, the the Harry Turtle Dove series that I mentioned, but I think I I pointed this out <laughs> to you that like again, one of the I think very understandable and very very believable aspects of like his timeline is that, you know, in, in his version, Lincoln, of course, in the same thing we see here, like he doesn't get assassinated, right? What, what's the point of, there's no, there's no reason to assassinate him because he's this disgraced figure and he's just a, a forgotten man. And in Harry Turtledove's uh, vision of America losing the civil war, Lincoln is of course this like disgraced politician. Everybody fucking hates him in the North because he lost. And Lincoln goes on to become a founding figure of the socialist party of the United States. And he basically becomes like, uh, the leading like American Marxist. And so as his, you know, timeline continues on the slaves and the, the, the blacks who are now suffering in the South, they all get really into Marx because that makes sense because they are the, the ultimate suffering laborers. And Marx is, of course, trying to speak to the suffering, the ultimate suffering workers of the world, the, the slaves who are literally still in bondage, you know, helping capitalists make their fortune. And like, like you said, Marsh, that's a very intriguing and very, you know, glaring kind of a mission to talk to about, you know, labor issues here and that there isn't this presentation of a sort of like organized labor movement. It is simply just that, that curiously in this film, and again, I think that's part of its construction and maybe that it's flawed, is that he's also trying to show us, well, this is history written by the whites, so they're clearly leaving out aspects that's right because that, it is a construction within a construction that we're watching right you know right. it's like it's not even just that it's like uh american it's that it's also like a bbc version of these events but but those are things that pop in your head of being like well what about this and what about that and 
you know there, there's only two moments in the 60s where they really even get into the idea of like a quote slave rebellion the the John Brown Union but it's also again just tacked on to the actual riots that took place in in Watts and and yeah in Newark you know but it isn't then like tugged on more yeah i think it's definitely built into the construction to a certain extent the idea that it is still the white man's established narrative however i think that this would have been a much more fascinating and provocative film if it really just used the opportunity for this to be a series of counter narratives so even though it's an alternate timeline we actually treat the 20th century period as a deep dive into what type of uprisings and resistances would have actually existed what kind of splinter cell groups you know how would people use this new this new environment like this alternate timeline how would people communicate with each other yeah. what type of networks would exist because i think that would have been really fascinating to see how people were able to figure out a way to collect unionize refocus in a much more suffocating situation where it is like even more systemic than it already is but yeah you know i guess it's sort of built into the design of it but i also think that it is a shortcoming of the script itself like they are still trapped in the official narrative, in the official history, that they can't think about the underlying history that was there already even to begin with, you mm -hmm. know, and use that as the jumping off point of this alternate history. Yeah. And of course, that's like, you know, we're projecting something onto somebody else's work and like their vision. And, and sometimes that's like, that's just a, a, a losing battle when you're just like, I wish that this had happened instead. I wish I saw this. And like, that's fair and it's like valid, you know, but it is true. I think I would have, I wish I would have seen more of that explained to us than like an attempt at like a sort of just like dig at the Clintons, you know, and, and, and like yeah. we get that and it's like, lol, I get it. You know, it's like, I did not have, my grandfather did not have sexual relations with that black woman. You know, it's like, okay. Right. It's like low hanging fruit at that point. Yeah. And I mean, I feel like it, it feels like such a misstep because the film is almost inviting it at the beginning because this presentation of the CSA, this BBC documentary is being presented on American television as this special one night only event saying, look at this really provocative film that the Brits made about our Confederate States of America. So I feel like, you know, that would have been even more interesting is to see those splinter cell groups and the way people resisted as being something that was provocative to the CSA. Because here's this big piece of media that tells the story of the people who were oppressed and not just the oppressors, you know? Mm -hmm. But yes, it is projection. I guess we are digressing there. I mean, on the other hand, uh, Yahoo Sirius watches some kids play hopscotch and invents the 4-4 beat um, <laughs> and you know speaking of sort of like inconsistencies you know this shouldn't have bothered me as much as it did but the there's like a, a soundtrack for young einstein and it, it's like all new wave and and i like it mm -hmm. but the problem is then there's all this shit about you know, well, first of all, there's all this like classical music and then like rock mixed with classical music. And then there's just this new wave soundtrack. And I, and I guess like, yeah, new wave is, is rock. It's it's 4-4 and all that. But I'm just going like, 
there's no coherence to any of this. It's driving me insane, especially because I think the soundtrack is good. I like it. <laughs> and then I'm just going like, but why is it here? You know, it, it just like, it was driving me nuts. Yeah, there's, there, I mean, there's a lot of things in there that, that I like. But I also share your sentiment of just being like, but but goddamn, why is that in this movie? I mean, I think my favorite sequence in the entire film is when he is, um, you know, forcibly um, committed to this this you know this insane asylum and specifically sent yeah. to the the mad scientist ward. But like, man, the depiction of like. His again, like very kind of garish and cartoonish idea of a of a lunatic asylum was like at times like frightening. I mean, it was like scary the way he was depicting that. And I that stuff all started to come back to me from like my childhood of being like, man, that whole sequence was like terrifying to it's me. It's like a Grimm's fairy tale. It really yeah. is. Like the the big buckets of slop that they're being fed, and then specifically the kitten oh. pie that starts to get baked. And I know for my cat, oh my, my cat boys. So <laughs> offensive. You know, it is the most offensive thing I've ever seen. Kyle was I was getting worked up. You <laughs> yeah. Know? I yeah. mean, I was too. Yeah, but what like a thrilling liberation, you know, when you've well, got yes. him like picking up that hot pie pan to rescue those kitties. Like it's like, yes. yeah, young Einstein, you know? <laughs> Folks, yeah. <laughs> to describe it to you, if you're not able to visualize the kitten pie, like there's just this like this uh, this really horrible chef at the lunatic asylum who who basically just takes out a massive pie pan, literally just picks up four live kittens that are mewing puts them in the pan and then just throws like, you know, pie crust over them and throws it in the oven. I mean, and he really like lingers on yeah. the 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 making of this kitten pie. And yes, they're liberated, but like those two shots were like too much to bear, you know, for me. <laughs> yeah, just the, the the image of the dough bouncing up and down from the real kittens that were trapped <laughs> under that dough, yeah. albeit very briefly, is a very intense to to Say the least. Yeah, it's wild. I mean, and like I loved it, but you know, yeah, it's like, what the fuck? Where is this suddenly coming from? Yeah. I mean, yeah, the prison also has like him schwitzing with the mad doctors, which is like awesome because he's just like hanging out with all these really eccentric people. Um, and there's also a a very fun sort of like uh prison escape. Uh, and somewhere in there, like a Sergio Leone tribute too. Again, this movie is fucking oh, all. Yeah. I mean, Rosenbaum started his capsule for the reader, uh, postmodernism with a vengeance, <laughs> and uh, I, I, I can only assume he's referring to yeah, just this is like the, this is this is the 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 like the 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 failure of postmodernism uh, writ writ large. I mean, that's that's really what it is. 100%. <laughs> I did love there were some funny visual ideas though during the the prison sequence. I love when I think they're having a serious conversation of some sort as as serious as a conversation could get in this movie and you know Yahoo is in the foreground but in the background is just a man sudsing up his ass for the entire duration <laughs> of the shot giving it a nice like smooth massage. I appreciate stuff like that. I also thought it was really funny when Mary Curie comes in dressed as uh, young Einstein's father in the hopes of liberating him from his incarceration. 
And so the first thing she does is she takes off her beard and then they just start making out and young Einstein is like grabbing Mary Curie slash his father's ass um, in a moment of tenderness. And I love how accepting all the guys in the institution are, you know, that that moment isn't played as broad comedy, but instead they're just saying, you know, oh, close family, you know, (laughs) they're not even judging Albert, you know, I was like, wow. Mm hmm. (laughs) <laughs> real australian hours um oh boy. <laughs> so you know to show you you know ryan i know you brought up your your funniest moment uh kyle and i laughed out loud and very hard at you know talk about low-hanging fruit when the film climaxes in paris at this like science convention they introduce and bring in charles darwin And it just cuts to him, and then it cuts to his dog, who's wearing a a necklace that says The Beagle. (laughs) And Kyle and I fucking, like, lost our shit inexplicably, (laughs) quote-unquote, at that moment. Uh, It was really cracking me up. I mean, the, the whole depiction of Paris, I think, was fun. There's in particular, like, these really aggressive French guys with, like, Bolexes, like elbowing their way through the crowd, you know, just like the aggressive uh, cineaste, you know, like I was cracking up at that stuff. But yeah, I really like the Beagle killed me. And, you know, it's it's got like, in a sense, everything you want out of a movie like this. It's got him cruising on a on a penny farthing. And then he takes a hot air balloon ride. Very brief. <laughs> One uh, mat shot. Yeah, very brief. <laughs> And then, of course, the 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 atom bomb sequence, where where only through the power of the rock that he's invented is he able to disarm the energy of this this impending uh, massive explosion. You are absorbing too much energy. You will be killed. You know, one nice touch to it, which also doesn't make a whole lot of sense, is that, you know, no one at this point should understand what an atom bomb yeah. is capable of. But, of course, the crowd are are running desperately away from it. Like, this is all supposed to be like cutting-edge science that hasn't been invented, but all these people apparently know they're about to get blown up. But one thing I will point out that I did like, which is that Darwin, you know, as the presented here as the greatest scientist of all time, you know, the the grand judge of the science championship in this movie. Uh, you know, when everyone's running away, he doesn't. He doesn't budge at all because he's also basically like, you can't run away from this thing. We might as well. Just, you're just getting worked up over nothing. We're all going to blow up. But again, also, uh, this is not Darwin's scientific area at all. He, he of all people, would probably still also be like, what's an atom? I know about the beagle, but uh, I'm not a physicist, folks. You know, this is beyond me. This is outside (laughs) my lane. I loved that element of the movie when he is putting two and two together and thinking like, wait, big machine that splits atom, atomic bomb, 
oh my God. And then just people <laughs> repeating the word atomic bomb and it clicking for all of them. Because I think that that was, a, again, like I said, a, a treat that I still somehow find myself enjoying throughout in its, you know, postmodern alternate history where, you know, these theories just come out of nowhere. They arrive and there's not like thought put into it. You know, there's no build up to them. They're just like sudden moments where he, Albert is struck by that inspiration. I did think it was funny that just saying atomic bomb out loud was as if like the plates of history had shifted and aligned and everyone was like, oh, fuck, an atomic bomb. Like, oh, my God, I get it. You know, like it worked for the drama for me because of how outlandish it was. I love that that though, that actually was the first moment he had to sit and think. He had to like take his apple and take a couple extra bites out of it because that's something that Einstein's doing throughout. He's always munching on an apple before he like does, you know, a flourish or a gesture. But he actually has to think like, how can I drain the energy from this atomic bomb? And that's when he discovers the the power of rock and roll. He's got to put this new music into practice. Which he calls... Roland Rock, of right. course. In this, right. You know, in this timeline, it's it's Roland Rock, a true original. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, and then he yeah, and then he shreds, you know. And uh, you know, it's it's not exactly Walter Hill's Crossroads, but it's <laughs> uh, you know pleasant enough. Yeah, I do think the final song is is super super dumb when he plays. Let's hear some more of that rock and roll music in its entirety. That oh, yeah. was like nauseating. That's a victory lap that's not earned. No, 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 <laughs> not at all. And I, again, having seen this movie the whole time, I knew it was coming. And I'm gonna I'm gonna be very honest with you, boys. <laughs> I turned it off during that number because I've seen it all before. I'd heard it all before. And again, Marsh. It wasn't earned. I wasn't going to give him that victory lap this time around, Yahoo. No no, thank you, sir. No thank you. He also does the <laughs> peace sign, uh, which, certainly, <laughs> which certainly predates its usage, probably as V for victory or the peace sign. But he uses it as the peace sign and then does, yeah, Chuck Berry's rock and roll music. Uh, and people are just holding up signs that says, like, Tasmanian boy did, did, did good or whatever. Dude, honestly, you know, when we put it all this way, like, I kind of feel like... Uh, Young Einstein is 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 a more racist movie uh, or a more racist depiction of the world than than CSA Confederate States of America or perhaps you know if you think about it maybe they are both in the same shared universe the same shared timeline interesting yeah like I I would say I was you know I had fun with Young Einstein like I was generally on its wavelength for its stupidity but there oh, are sure. some major groaners you know especially with like the aboriginal community in in this movie just those moments that are just like these dismissive mocking visual gags because that's the thing all the gags are visual right so it's like when they don't land in a situation like that it's like agonizing I mean there's even some like pretty crude stuff with with asian people there's that one like throwaway line when he's at so the university wrong. yeah like <laughs> that was pretty bad you know so it's like straight out of fucking csa i mean that's yeah. that's the exact kind of humor that that he's like saying he's taking us to task for it in in that film yeah yahoo definitely not um a serious reflective guy to say 
the very least. Well, yeah, and again, I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to make it like a whole big thing, but like the point of CSA I, I, that he's making broadly is that like, yes, the 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 things in our media that we have for hundreds of years laughed at that is is commonplace on our movie screens, on our television screens, and that sort of thing that we have often just kind of been like, oh, what's the harm in that? It's not a big deal, you know. He's he's trying to. In his own way, again, with mixed results, in this case, trying to show us like, hey, you folks laugh at racist shit all the goddamn time. And it's totally acceptable. It's as if the Civil War never fucking happened. Or, yes, it did happen, but what did it really change for anyone? Like, they are maybe not in literal chains any longer, but everywhere they still are imprisoned by our writing of history, our control of narratives, our depiction of events, our our claims on who popularized rock and roll and that kind of shit, you know? It comes from a place of superiority, right? It's always like punching down. And and for so many years we were able to. And that's why it's so funny to me, again, in that the movie Dark Victory, which is there almost kind of like attempted like a sort of John Ford like or Sam Fuller. Sam Fuller, yeah. The guy was like mock Gene Evans, I swear. Yeah, dude, exactly. You know, it's 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 set in in the you know America's conquest of of South America, and and you know in this moment of drama, they're they're sort of questioning the American losses of of trying to conquer you know Brazil or wherever they are at that moment. Like we lost the whole platoon, Jimmy and Cliff and Phil. Was it all worth it? And like there's this this you know the the officer who's like really upset by all this, and and at his breaking point, you know he turns to the yeah the the fake chief. Evans and he's like what does he say is the whole world red black brown yellow I feel like we're surrounded you know it's like what it's like yeah that's the whole fucking point you stupid dipshit you know and we have been bunching down on the rest of the world in movies like this uh for a very very long time and here comes Yahoo series <laughs> I don't, I mean, I'm trying to say Yahoo Serious is some sort of like race criminal who should be locked up, but yeah. Upbeat equals downbeat. In that state, gravity will roll to the downbeat. Therefore, the body motion must rock to the upbeat. I've just invented a new musical theory. Roll and rock. Roll and rock. Roll and rock. But, you know, it seems like the film Durkee would like. And, you know, I think, too, of course, you know, as mentioned in the CSA, uh, South Africa in solidarity with the Confederate States of, of America when, when no one else was, you know. And, and I always return in my thoughts and heart and prayers to, to our, our boy Durkee. And what he would have thought about all this alternate history going on. Not much, probably. <laughs> Not much. He's trying to survive. That's all he's trying to do. Yeah, Durkee probably would have watched the CSA and, like, not realized it was a mockumentary. Uh, I don't know if you guys saw, but Bobby Wygant had uh, had Yahoo on. Oh, uh, damn, I didn't check in with Bobby. Uh, God damn it. And, I mean, it, it's pretty much what you would expect, which is, like, you know, two minutes of her going, like, is that really your name? You know, uh, and then and then followed up by like, 
tell me what is going on with your hair you know and then he like <laughs> has he like rolls his eyes and he like has, he, he's very sweet he's very low-key but like it's it's painful stuff you oh, know Bobby. but uh whew, yeah Bobby. check that out when you when you get home i mean I guess I do want to bring up because I thought this was really funny in the you know in the four quadrants of of Chicago film criticism in 1988. Uh, there's a bit of a civil war over uh, Young Einstein that I found very funny. Oh. Roger Ebert gave Young Einstein one star. However, he defended it f- from Gene, who went who went all out. Against it on the show. And Roger just took the line like, look, I, I get Australians like this. That's their business. <laughs> you know? But like, but like Siskel was like, it's, he was like insulting Australia and being like, it's dumb. It's stupid. Anyone who likes this, I can't imagine anyone liking this. You know, just like going yeah. off. This came from a penal <laughs> colony. Like, what's going on over there? And so, yeah, two thumbs down from, from Siskel and Ebert. And then, uh, you know, aforementioned, J. Slightly positive and Kerr slightly positive uh, in the Tribune. So uh, split sp- <laughs> split decision on uh, on Young Einstein, wow. 1988 Chicago style. Wow, yeah, bless Gene Siskel's heart. That's the only time I'll say that. <laughs> yeah, that's it's a it's a very funny clip because like yeah, then Rod, you know, Ebert's like in the position of defending a movie he doesn't want to defend, so it's. <laughs> It's a, it's a good dynamic. You know, one thing I saw that was kind of interesting, did you guys come across the like extended timeline of CSA that was that had existed on their website when the film came out? There was like an official like additional notes about, you know, what had happened and where it was going. Had either of you co- come across that? No, no, I didn't look at that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so it lists like a couple things about how Nixon travels to China in 72 still he's in talks with the chinese government which opens the way for confederate run labor camps to be run in china which results in like cheaper goods being made and imported from china mao would never do that right and then the things that i was like struck by that i you know thinking about this film being from like the hell of the bush era and um kind of wishing that this maybe was tossed in a little bit at the end the you know kuwait becomes a confederate territory after the first gulf war and then the war in afghanistan and subsequent american interventions in the middle east are known as the first and second crusade with the goal of eradicating the muslim menace you know all true so again it's just like leaning in harder to the established history but yeah he it goes into other things about like rosa parks being a canadian terrorist and things like that It's not easy. I mean, doing no. alternate history. I think if if this week has shown us anything, like unless you're a hairy turtle dove, uh, alternate <laughs> history is is really hard. You know. I mean, I know some people like my dad. My dad like hates alternate history. You know, and and uh, he's just like, I have no time for that. Like, I don't yeah, care. It didn't happen. Yeah, yeah. You know, fuck it's like, off with that. Yeah, ultimate boomer shit. Like, I was there. I saw it all go down. Like, why why worry about about how it could have gone, you know, this is the way it is, um, you know, and my dad is a creative man, you know, but he is not interested <laughs> in alternate history. He just, he's always like, I just get disconnected from it at a certain point. I just go like, why am I wasting my time reading about, you know, the, the fourth German Reich or whatever. So, right. Yeah. I mean, well, I was, this is even something I was thinking about in terms of, uh, 
and it not being a genre I'm particularly fascinated by. Um, but again, I had a feeling that both of you would surprise me with something that could, you know, befit the topic. And that's why I was very pleased with how this week went. But I was sort of even just mulling over, like, what could I possibly even say during the throwback session at the end? You know, like, what is something, an alternate history film that I actually enjoy? And I mean, you know, I would definitely align myself, as you were saying, Marsh, you know, with with Peter Watkins, of course, all of those films and their explorations of, you know, technology existing when it shouldn't, other versions of alternate timelines there. That's the great stuff. That's the kind of stuff that I, you know, get really jazzed about. And to quote the father in Young Einstein, you know, like maybe I'll show the films of Peter Watkins to my children if I ever have children, but then uh, to, to use the specific language in Young Einstein, I, I will teach it to my father and to my father's father who will teach it to his father's father, right? Like that's, that's <laughs> what I hope with the Peter Watkins in my life. But I guess if I had to pick like one that I do like an alternate history film, I do think Scorsese's The Last Temptation of Christ is like pretty good. And also just even beyond the fact that Jesus lives that alternate history, I'm like particularly struck by the alternate history that it, it was just a bunch of New Yorkers. Yeah. That's like why I like that movie. That is also why I like that movie. Yeah. 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 That yeah. Judas is Harvey Keitel. And then like all those guys had thick New York accents. Uh, that is the alternate history yeah. I get Dude, excited about. All I, all I hear is, is the scene where like, you know, Harvey Keitel as old Judas comes in on, on Christ's deathbed when he's dying as an old man. And he's just like, traitor, traitor. Traitor! I just hear Kaitel screaming at him like that. <laughs> it's you know that was I, I did want to say about the Watkins thing though that was like part of my brief like discussion with Marsh was like yes I love Watkins too but I was like I didn't you know my thing with the the idea of alternate history was I was like it had to be set in the past. It's true. A lot of his stuff is like an alternate future, you know, yeah. which is which is sort of why I was kind of like a diff, slightly different you know it topic. Is. It is. You know. Well, thank you again. Thank you both. Uh, I now pass pass it off to you, Marsha. I hand you the torch. Time to get serious. Uh, you can set us back on the the proper timeline here. What do we got f- next week? Yes. Well, in a couple weeks, I am uh, I'm making my return to the great state of Arizona, uh, a place I'm quite fond of, but haven't been for for quite a long time. But Back in the day, I, I found myself in the, the greater Phoenix area uh, often, and I'm just getting hyped about the Grand Canyon State. So uh, why don't you bring me movies set, shot, made, about, around, in Arizona? One of my favorite places to see on screen and to go. I also, I love Arizona. It's a dry heat. As always, <laughs> you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies or send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. Worth it, Sergeant? We can watch the live clip. John. My God, man! Is the whole world red, black, brown, and yellow? 
They'll always have numbers. Lieutenant. I don't know much. But I know this. This world is made for the God-fearing to use as we see fit. For a while, these savages call it theirs. But they're just wrecked. Oh, it was always ours. It's just a slave dog. Yeah. Kill them all. And let God sort them out.